Manisuya Narana Chansi Sinturakan Lebenung Naranyana Vishisanaikenamena Sirityatos. Welcome to Khan Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and Bianca Mangum is not with us today, so all I have is my intelligent co-host, B- William Annis. Hi, not Bianca. Yes, William Annis. <laughs> and uh, so I may just like not talk like I usually do. <laughs> No, I think our topic today we, I can I can talk a little bit about, but let's see. Oh, um, announcements! I have another niece now. Good lord! <laughs> yes, her name is Annabelle. Well, congratulations. Yes, they're they're coming very quickly. How many siblings do you have? Uh, three. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Two older sisters and an older brother. Okay. So uh, I'm the youngest, which is why. I don't know. You're not spawning yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sh- I should say that. That 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 that's like well, yeah. I don't even have a girlfriend now, so yeah. Um, let's see. Other than that, oh, I just discovered the Speculative Grammarian podcast. I didn't. For some reason, I have not listened to that until now, and I just listened to the latest one. That's out. It's awesome. I didn't know that they had a podcast. They do. Wow. I'll have to go hunt that down. Okay. I uh uh their most recent one where they had the calendar in Mongolian and Chinese that every day had a different disease of livestock. <laughs> the vocabulary for that. Uh that's not what uh um there's the latest one in the feed. George, I think your microphone is dead. Testing one, two, three. Okay, I can hear you now. Okay. If I don't edit this out, listeners this happens every once in a while recently. Skype just drops me for some reason, but I'm still recording myself, so William didn't hear me at all. Well, that was irritating. Okay. So, and I wrote a thing about romanization, but anyway. <laughs> I'm surprised how much discussion that brought up. Well, I'm not. I mean, people worry about it a lot. Often... And I'm not the only one. This, several people d- don't like K because they think it looks ugly. Uh-huh. It's too pokey. So they prefer to use a C. Yes. Well, I used to be that way. Now I'm the opposite. <laughs> anyway. All pokey consonants all the time. But that's that's not what it's about. Maybe I'll link that. But uh, let's. I'll let that speak for my for itself until we do a romanization episode. But okay. now. Today, we are talking about irregularity. So, probably most of our audience is interested in creating naturalistic languages. That seems to be the general trend in conlanging. Would, would, do you think uh, that would be right, William? I think that's usually true, except for, obviously, there's always the, the Oxlang people have their uh-huh. own agenda. I don't think many Oxlang people listen to us. Yeah, that they... may be. Yeah. Although, I have to say, I, I've been trying to wrap my head around certain things that go with ergativity. So I was actually seriously considering inventing a very simple language, maybe not as simple as something like Esperanto, and give it a good vocabulary and some grammar just so that I have something simple, simpler than Basque at any rate, to play around with while I try to wrap my brain around 
things like syntactic pivots when you can only pivot on absolutive case, you know, things like that. Yeah, it that, might be useful that, to have a simple language to play with for those. That I see logically. I think even professional linguists will develop an entirely regular language that's somewhat limited in order to run experiments and stuff. Sure. As in, like, teaching people and stuff. But um, anyway, we're talking sort of the opposite of that. Yep. How do you include a realistic amount of irregularity into your language, a realistic amount of sort of odd forms or whatever. So, William, you, you put up some really good notes on various different types of irregularity. I think, uh, as you were mentioning, what most people think about when they think about irregularity in a language is morphological irregularity. Right. Yeah. Because English speakers are very easily freaked out about forms that look different. We have to learn Spanish or French or German. It's like, why are all of the verbs irregular? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even though English does have plenty of irregular verbs. Sure, but we don't remember learning those, so we have to memorize things. <laughs> right? Yes. No native English speaker has 501 English verb books. Right. That's true. Um, sorry, it just occurred to me the idea of 500 Esperanto verbs would just be the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> sorry, I the thought just came into my mind. Anyway, right, so typically when people mean irregularity, they mean morphological irregularity. Mm -hmm. And for English speakers, I think often anything weird at all gets called irregular, even if it might be 100% predictable. Uh, that can be true. Right. I know, yep. like, some of the stem changes that you find in Romance languages, I know, at least in Spanish, like, the e to ye and o to ue, that's pretty easy to predict based on what, uh, based on the, uh, the actual root. Sure. Exactly. Um, I will always remember years and years ago when I was taking Sanskrit, there were two classicists in the course and you know we were on the second week of learning the the consonant declension for sanskrit nouns and one of the classicists said hey how many different consonant declension noun or how many different kinds of consonant declensions are there in sanskrit and the teacher said you know i've never stopped to count and we never saw those people again <laughs> but but it wasn't hard, right? This consonant runs into this consonant, you know, just the teeniest bit of linguistics and how features work, and it's all perfectly fine and sensible. But they thought, you know, they had, you know, a, a dozen charts to memorize, which you don't. You don't need a dozen charts to learn this. You just need to learn some sound changes. Yeah. So That's right. actually, though, a really good way of introducing something that that shifts around. Um, right. So, so that's a good way to give sort of a natural look to your language is use these sensible sound changes and, and, and write them. Yeah, just sort of like, uh, I don't know, just like just using like ablaut somewhere. Can... Sure. Well, that's even more complicated. I'm thinking something simple like if one of your case endings, endings starts in an S, devoice the previous stop. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of these things, and beginning students whine and cry, but it, if you know linguistics, which I hope most conlangers do, then there's it's it's all related to obvious feature assimilation stuff. Very easy. Yeah. In, f in fact, actually, the example you give, like, English has stuff like that. Like, English has, like, 
that even worse with the plural marker being underspecified until you know what the the last sound in the stem is. Right. Right. Yeah. And so. uh, one of my favorite things from Sanskrit is if your noun has an R in it someplace, then certain case endings have a retroflex N instead of a normal N, and that that works across the entire word. So that's very fun. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's some that's some Sunday stuff going on. Uh. It's working at long distance, so I don't think it's really Sunday, but, you know, maybe. Oh. Anyway, I mean, if, if, if our favorite language that we don't know how to pronounce, Teva, or Tuva, you know, Dirk Elzinger's language, if it were spelled the way it sounded, it would look mind-bogglingly irregular. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right, because all sorts of things happen at, at boundaries and, and so forth in that language. And you can do other weird things, like in, in ancient Hebrew, at least, as you keep piling on different morphemes to a word... The accent shifts, and there's this wholesale slaughter of all of the vowels up at the beginning of the word. <laughs> so, right, you take an imperfective, and then you add a direct object suffix to a verb, and there's this collapse of everything in front of, you know, at the other end of the word. <laughs> oh, the if vowels you, disappear. The vowel, well, they turn into schwas and get reduced in various ways, but some are immune to reduction. So, I mean, you can have fun with something like that. So, there's all things you can do that can be 100% predictable, but still make the language look, quote-unquote, irregular. Okay, well, I think all of those things will will generate sort of that sort of, uh, I like to call that regular irregularity. Right. Sort of, it's sort of similar to, like, the strong verbs in English, where... Although those are a little bit more like truly irregular because there's there's it's not it has to be memorized sometimes when right. you have a strong verb and when you don't. So that that's suppletion, uh-huh. right? That's that's go versus went. Well, no, that's not no, suppletion. No, you're thinking no, no, of no. just. I'm you're not thinking, stra- of... thinking that. I'm thinking I don't know. Bring and brought stuff sure. like that. Yeah. So that's well, that one's historical, or as I uh-huh. like to pronounce it, hysterical. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's let's save the historical stuff for a little bit further. Okay. Well, well, we'll we'll talk more about them later then. Since I mentioned subletion, I guess we can mention those. Yes. So, like we have go and went and Our classic examples in English. Basically, it looks like the entire paradigm for to be is subletion. No, it's not. Well, well the past is. A good part of it seems like it. Am it's, is an R are all perfectly regular developments of an ancient, ancient paradigm in English. Okay. The past tense and the subjunctives are have other history. I should. We should actually mention, though, as we're talking about this, when you're dealing with uh, to be, that is a very good example of another thing, is the most commonly used words in a language are the most likely to have some sort of irregularity. Yes. So the word to be is going to carry a lot of irregularity because you say that, I don't know what the, the rate is, but it's it's probably uh, it's a huge frequency. Whereas a word like optometrist is not likely to be very irregular. And, right. you know, if, if it has any case marking or anything on it and anything irregular develops from it, it's so rare it's probably going to be flattened by analogy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the secret to some people might think that's unusual. Why would that be the case? But 
the the most commonly used words preserve their irregularities because they're the irregularities are constantly reinforced. You use them so much that the strangeness persists. Yeah. Whereas things that are a little further out there, you know, start to to are more likely to be shaved down into being regular. It all stems from the fact that each uh, you know each generation learns the language imperfectly from their parents. So right. Um, yeah. So. We know about go versus went, suppletion. So tense and aspect, having different stems is fine. Um, you could have different stems for different cases in some words. For example, in the Indo-European languages, the nominative for I, ego in Latin, is one thing, whereas all the oblique forms, you know, start with M, me, or Latin, me, mihi, Greek, moi, all of that. Oh, that's interesting. The, the weirdest thing I think I've done, and this is actually still a verb thing, is I changed the stem for to be in the negative. But I have a language that has negative inflections. I don't know sure. if that's common. Yeah, no, I think I think that that's probably pretty reasonable. Um, so we have suppletion based on negation. That's nifty. Um, you might have different stems for different numbers. So, for example, in Navajo verbs of motion, the stem agrees with the number of the subject. So you have a singular stem, a dual stem, and a plural stem, which have um, no relationship to each other at all. We should we should mention, I think, the difference between a stem and a root here, because some people might not quite understand that. Uh, making that distinction only applies to some languages. Yeah, but, I mean, that's true, but... I think when we're talking about a stem, we're not necessarily talking about something completely different. It may be historically related to the other stem. It might be. I'm talking about a situation where they're definitely manifestly not. Oh, okay. Well, then in that case, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, one of them is, well, I don't have them at hand. One is K-A-A, ka, and one of them is A-A-H, ah, no relationship oh. there. And then I forget what the the plural is. Whatever. So you can have completely different stems for number. Um, and this pops up irregularly all over the planet in strange places. Um, there are a few verbs in ancient Greek where the active and the passive have completely different stems. Huh. Wow. Not too many of those, but, but they can happen. You, you talk about the, the negative situation and having a different thing. I, w- I was thinking about this. In English, you never say that somebody didn't pass away. No, you can't. You, you can't. You say, say they that. didn't die. It's only when they actually died that you can actually say pass away. That's that's unusual, right? You don't. I've never heard anyone say, "Oh, he didn't pass away." Well, that's ridiculous. You say he didn't die because you're not afraid of the word in that circumstance. Huh. So this um, could provide you a way to think about why you might get different verbs for positive and negative. Okay, that makes sense. Um, that makes me think, actually, think talking about positive and negative, this maybe crosses out, uh, out into more of a syntactic issue. Um, I know that in Chinese, the typical negative is bu. Right. But the verb yo, to have, takes mei. And as a consequence, everything in past tense can take mei because there's a structure mayo. Right. So basically every active verb can take may with an elided yo that's un- understood to have been there. Sure. So different negative for tense. Um, Greek and Sanskrit have different negative for different moods. Mm-hmm. 
So indicative mood negative is different from the irrealis negative, which gets used in all sorts of funky ways, um, which in Greek at least presents itself across the entire pronoun system. Nobody in one mood is a different word from nobody in the subjunctive. Oh, wow. Because all of those are, are – many of those negatives are compounds of the negative adverb and you know, squished together with something. So you have, to, you have to memorize a parallel set of negative adverbs in Greek. That's a very interesting <laughs> way to, to have, have things happen, especially, you know, that causes – like that, that ends up being both syntactic and morphological irregularity in there. Right. So you talked about ablaut earlier. That's fun. And, it, and again, it might be perfectly regular feature of the language, but because the word shape changes, English speakers freak out, and it looks like irregularity. Mm-hmm. We're used to thinking of vowel ablaut. Mm-hmm. Like in, in Indo-European, you can have a zero grade, you can have an E grade or an O grade, and those are your three degrees of ablaut. So no vowel, an E, or an O. But it doesn't have to be that way. You could have an A and a long U for all I care, right? And it, it it doesn't matter for your invented language. And you can do things other than just switch the vowel. You can do things with tone. You can do things with vowel length. Um, some languages have consonant ablaut. Hmm. So, yeah, there's all sorts of fun you could do there. Yeah. It's just sort of a, another way to do the, the regular irregularity and stuff. Yeah, that's um, right. The other one is umlaut, which is sometimes called an I mutation. Basically, it's a kind of short-acting vowel harmony. Right, you have an I or a Y sound in one syllable causes wackiness, typically fronting, um, to the vowel in the previous syllable. That's why we have things like um, foot and feet and goose and geese. That's umlaut. Yeah. So you could, you know, make I don't know, make a plurals or a particular verb form. I mean, Old Norse is a complete pain because <laughs> you have several. You have an I mutation and you have an A mutation, both of which cause funky changes to your both verbs and your nouns. So the declension of the word for man in Old Norse looks like a complete disaster, but everything that happens in it is regular. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Right. So one of them is N plus R is unstable in Old Norse. Your N turns into the interdental fricative. So the nominative of man is mother, you know, M-A-T-H-R. And then in the dative, your ah turns into an aw because there's an um ending, so that becomes monum. So, yeah, there's all sorts of wackiness there, but all completely predictable. Wow, that's awesome. But it looks uh, like a mess. And, of course, you, you would say man a lot in Old Norse. So right. It would... It would preserve all that stuff but even so it's completely regular anyway so right right and then once you've got all of these different possibilities you know if you've got you know say you've gone with ablaut and robust assimilation you know just mix and match just go nuts (laughs) oh dear lots of assimilation that that would be interesting sometimes sort of Dissimulative stuff can can yes. do the same thing. That's that's a good one too. Where um, I'm trying to remember the word. What's the word for danger in Spanish? Peligro. Yeah, peligro, peligro. I think it used to be peligula in Latin mm. or pelicula or something like that. Whatever it was, one of the L's turned into an R because they didn't like all the la la las. Um, I don't know. 
There, some some really bizarre stuff happened with L and R in Spanish. That that L and R are much hated in all languages. They're subject to all sorts of indignities. Yeah, like um, Spanish para or Latin parabola became Spanish palabra. Okay. Like all sorts of weird metatheses and and stuff happened in Spanish. That's more historical stuff, but yeah. Yeah. We're talking more about things that are synchronically irregular, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have certain kinds of... Okay, I've, I'm remembering. The first thing I wanted to say was, so many of us, especially beginning conlangers and even advanced ones, we like agglutinative languages. Because uh-huh. we can just make gigantic piles of grammatical joy. <laughs> and that lends itself to pretty transparent regularity. And using some of these sound changes can sort of cl- smooth over some of that boring-looking regularity. Or rather, sort of rough it up. Yeah, yeah, well, right, right. Rough it up. Make it a little more interesting. Yeah. Um, add some, yeah, add some metathesis and you're, you're off and going. <laughs> One thing I wanted to mention as a possibility is if you've got assimilation, like voicing assimilation or something, and you have gaps in your stop system then all sorts of fun can happen. So typically, you know, you have your bilabial, your alveolar or dental, and your velar series. Pa, ta, ka. If you've got voiceless, then you might, you may or may not, you have voiced. So you've got the voiceless and the voiced. There are two consonants that are likely to drop out of those. Well, they're not likely to, but if you lose an element of your voiceless series, it's usually P. And if you're going to lose something from your voiced series, it's usually G. So pa and ga are the most likely to go away. Classical Arabic, which has a raft of strange consonants, killed both of them. Oh, okay. I knew that it was missing P for some reason. Yes. Um, what that means is if you've got you know, voicing assimilation and a stem ends in a B, what happens when an S comes after it? Well, you don't have a P in this language, or you might not have a P in this language, or you may decide you have to keep it, but you can... Decide to do other things there, like turn it into some sort of vowel or something, or an H, uh-huh. whatever. If you, if you do not have a perfectly symmetrical sound system, that also opens up the possibility for things that look awfully irregular, but are still completely predictable. Hmm. Okay. And that can be um, done by taking into account the history, the idea of you lost P somehow. So right. So what, 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 what was the sound change that made, made it? made you lose it. Correct. I did a sort of uh, a weird thing with Ayurio uh, with the genitive marker. The idea is the genitive marker now is ya. It's a, a um, IPAJ. But the idea is that earlier there was a phoneme ya, the, the palatal L sound. Okay. But it was lost in all instances that that um, occur now are sort of um, take it can be taken as allophones of regular clear L mm-hmm. and stuff. So I just kind of assume that the genitive marker used to be this palatal L, and it has this weird dissimulation because the sounds e and y and iario hate each other. Normally, that's uh, that's resolved in other ways, but only in the genitive. It has this dissimulation where the the yes sound becomes a yeah. Hmm. So I don't know. That might be an example of how you could uh, 
throw in random historical things in it. Sure. Or it might have created something stupid. Well, no, I, I think that's that's defensible. So that's typically when most people say they want irregularity in their language or, the, or when they talk about irregularity, they mean the leftover craziness that comes from historical changes. Yeah. That is really hard to do well, right? First, you create your proto-language, and then you derive something from it. And if you're J.R.R. Tolkien and you have 40 years, then you can do this great. Um, it's really hard to do well, and frankly, that's a series of shows to talk about all of that. But I yeah. still think it's possible, if you don't want to go through the process of creating entire proto-lang, is you can have a sketch, at least of the phonology of your proto-lang, and use that to inform stuff that's going on. Yeah, and that was... I didn't really sketch it out, but I had a vague idea of what what the ancestor to the language had. Right. And then I used that to extrapolate. So long as you make sure that you're dealing with the same ancestral language every time you introduce an irregularity. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, if you don't well, keep, if you don't make at least a few notes, or if you might get um, chaos. That's true. That will embarrass so. you later. So uh, I was just thinking about this recently. Most of the languages of Australia have multiple verb classes where their tense and aspect marking have different shapes depending on what class the verb is in. And it turns out this is probably a result of the fact that there were six, only six or seven consonants that a verb stem could end in. And everything follows from that. You have your predictable set of six or seven ending uh, stem endings, and then you have the different uh, markers of, of tense and aspect. And over time, consonant clusters resolve themselves out in different ways. So what was a perfectly regular looking agglutinative system in the distant past is now a great old mess where every language in Australia has picked and choose their own way to go. So most languages have only, you know, two, three, four yeah. of these different classes left with, you know, various mergers and reworkings of the, the system and so forth. So that's another thing you can do, you know, produce uh, different kinds of verb classes but imagine that the verb stems ended in, you know, if, if it ended in a T, this sort of thing happened, and a different class ended in L, and then run through the, the sound changes. Again, that's yeah. a small-scale historical thing you can do to make your verbs less regular Another without thing, having to produce an entire proto-language and running it through rules. Another thing that popped up to me, and this is actually more of a almost a semantic thing, but gender is all, almost always somewhat arbitrary, especially yeah. sort of masculine-feminine gender, but sometimes it can be more semantic than others. Like, I know, like, in Spanish, most nouns referring to humans can agree with the the actual referent you're referring to, to the point where people even created presidenta when presidente would actually have been nor workable for either gender you just have to change the article mm -hmm. and and but the exception being a couple of words like persona is feminine gente is feminine um there's other cases where that doesn't work like in another romance language italian words for professions have a gender that they're associated with rather than changing according to who you're referring to right in both German and ancient Greek, and I, I doubt this is because of any distant relationship, diminutives are grammatically neuter. Mm, okay. So Mark Twain, Mark Twain famously made fun of the fact that a young woman, Mädchen, in German is an it, 
Yes. Um, das Mädchen. Really? Um, although, when speaking, there's always going to be a fight between natural and, and grammatical gender. And that happened all the time in Greek. Something like paideon, which means child, is a diminutive, but it's a neuter. And sometimes it gets to, sometimes it gets something that makes a bit more sense. So, that can be fun. But in general, right, if you have any kind of gender system, you can certainly start to, to have fun. Um, my language, Kachzai, has mostly semantic animate versus inanimate, but I have a small number of semantic inanimates that are grammatically animate, like dirt and blood and the sun. Yeah. Right? For for various reasons, which I would hope are obvious. A little thought. But so, yeah, you can go completely bonkers with that. And it doesn't matter what kind of gender system you have, but you can have... I think I saw a note somewhere that David J. Peterson's uh, Dothraki has inanimate and animate gender, and there's a couple of words that the only reason that they're different genders is to differentiate homophones. Oh, that's interesting. Sure, that's a kind of pressure that can happen if you have sound changes that obliterate differences between words, or especially that obliterate differences between grammar, then you need some sort of propping up to help keep things clear. Yeah. So I think we've we've covered a whole lot of different options. I think we still were staying mostly in the realm of morphological I think gender kind of is a little bit syntactic because sometimes yeah. the only way to mark gender is on a dependent or something right if you find yourself producing a series of grammatical things and it doesn't matter what those things are and they're all the same syllabic length and they're all identical structures is when you should stop and think so don't mark all your moods the same way <laughs> and don't mark all your tenses the same way for Pete's sake um, uh, don't do what the language we're about to talk about does, which is let's present is I, no, present is A, past is I, future is O. No, please do not do that. I mean, you can do that, but it's pretty, very unusual. Um, yeah. So another case in, in Kachzai, I decided that the word for possibly or maybe is an adverb. But if you want to say something is probable or he probably did something, then it, it takes a special verb and a dependency construction. Yeah, and I, I, um, my verbs in Iorio are extremely regular, yeah. other than a couple of, like, changes in stems. But I did, after we, we did an episode on mood, I actually revised something so that, like, we, I have the, the five moods that are marked on verbs, but I also have some of my auxiliaries are modal. Right. So. Right, so mix and match things like because you can you you can get languages that are awfully regular morphologically. Everyone's favorite example is Turkish. I mean, it's not perfectly regular, but it is awfully regular once you come to grips with vowel harmony. But there's still all sorts of other funkiness that's going on there that that you can you can use. Um, one of my favorite examples of messed up syntax from ancient Greek is that it has three common verbs of speaking. One uses one form of dependency marking. Accusative plus infinitive. One uses a different dependency marking, a conjunction plus a different mood, and one can use either. <laughs> uh, yeah, we didn't even get into that kind of thing. I, don't, I think a lot of conlangers don't really get into that that deep of stuff. Because, I mean, when you get into something like that, even English can give you, you know different dependency marking for different verbs for sure. no other reason than that's the way people say it. Right, so like it's like these 15 verbs of cognition do it one way, but these three over here do it a different way. Yeah, I think, and, and I certainly noticed this in myself, and it sure seems to me when looking at some pe other people's conlangs, 
and not even necessarily just beginning ones, is all of us have this idea that maybe we could actually learn the language that we're inventing. And I think it makes us scared to do things that are just a pain in the ass to memorize. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I mean, nobody... it becomes a nuisance. Like, what have I done to myself? Why do I have to learn 13 ways to, you know, whatever it is. So nobody wants to do things like phrasal verbs and stuff. <laughs> well, I think people, well, sure, phrasal verbs are, are, are I mean, everything. Yeah. Weird, weird, weird. Case marking or different kinds of noun classes or verb classes, whatever. So if you find yourself being fearful, that's when you're most likely to maybe make a decision that you will regret five years later. If you really, really, really want to learn your conlang, and really, I think the majority of conlangers ever, don't ever do that. Um, no, but we might have the fantasy that we will. Um, if you really, really want to do it, you probably can find a way. So we've talked about all of these ways to fake irregularity, <laughs> or at least reduce the impression of regularity of, of, of a quick look at a language. To get the real kinds of irregularities that we get in natural languages, you really do have to go, I think, the historical route, and we don't have time for that in one episode. Certainly not today's episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't, we can't talk about doing sound changes and everything. A lot of people have suggested doing the historical route, on an episode, and I think we might break that into pieces and, and talk about it in the future. Yeah. Unfortunately, like that's not the way iconlang usually, so I'm not really sure how to how to explain it. So you know, we're gonna have to get someone because I don't either. I love 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 historical linguistics, but I don't. I I except for the sort of things I've mentioned before, a very sort of shallow kind of historical stuff to motivate differences in, in you know verbs and nouns and what for so forth i don't i don't do those either uh, well maybe yeah if you are really big into the historical conlanger thing let us let us know we might we might try to get you guys you get you on the show you should contact mark rosenfelder and say hey can you do a few episodes yeah, with us i do I was, this i was thinking about that he He's uh, sort he of the that. major exponent of that yeah. style these days, I think. Having Mark on would be a good thing, anyway. So, or we could have a seance and ask Tolkien about it. Yeah, no. <laughs> that, that won't happen. No consorting with the dead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that's quite possible. So, anyway. Okay. Why don't we um, move along, since we're we're pretty... We've pretty much done all the irregularity stuff, and we're pretty far in the show. Why don't we actually move on to our featured codlang, which, as William has mentioned several times, is absolutely the opposite of everything we're talking about, because <laughs> we are talking about Esperanto, which was created in... What, when was it created? 1800-something. Late 1800s, I would have to go stare. Um, yeah. The first, um, the first publication was 1887. 1887 mm -hmm. by L. L. Zamenhof. He called it uh, universal, the universal language, or something, right? Right. But right. His... He wrote it with the pen name Doctoro Esperanto. Yes, Doctoro Esperanto, which is where it gets its current name, Doctor Hopeful. Anyway. Although it's important to say he worked on it for a long time before he ever published. Yeah, well, you can, you can expect that he worked on it for a long time before 
That's that's true of any con line. You can't really publish publish no, it without. No, that's not true. I think I think too many Oxlangers slap something out and then you know start making hostile posts on on news groups. Uh, that is true. When the language is barely ready. But anyway, so let's talk about it. We'll review a few things. Like for one thing, I don't like the Roman is the 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 uh, orthography for. <laughs> Esperanto very much. I was I just look, was looking at your key and I'm like, why do you need you circ- circumflex for what? Right. So I, I suppose I should confess or, my... or not actually not circumflex, but you with the the what's the the one that looks like a dish. Anyway, but <sighs> what, what so many circumflexes and and there's crap. only the one. Well, there are several of the circumflex. Anyway, so yes, um, I'm you know I'm probably the only. Esperantist who's been in any way associated with the show. Esperantist in the sense that I use the language and I actually talk with people in it. Yes. Um, and I don't hate it. <laughs> the language comes in for a lot of abuse among especially art conlangers, but it tends to make people hostile for some reason. Well, a lot of people just don't like it. Let, let, let's, let's talk a little bit this. The, the art langer community is totally different from any... Oxlang community there is. Right. And we're, in, we have... In the olden days, the Conlang mailing list had both, but eventually we evicted the Oxlangers because we got tired of them arguing. Well, well, so many... Um, well, when you're talking about Oxlangers, I don't think that uh, an Oxlanger community could really arise because everybody thinks they have the right answer. Right. Um, I don't know. I think some of them can be friendlier with yeah. each other. But, but I mean, for Esperanto, this is not what I'm talking about. Because Esperanto just has its own Esperantist community. Yes. That um, that developed around the language. And I think it's just the idea of having totally different goals towards language design. And also, a lot of people in the Conlanger community have the linguistic knowledge to realize that the original goals for Esperanto were unrealistic, and that the the language is also unsuited for the original goals it was for. Like, we know that claims like it's the easiest language to learn are bogus. Well, he, see, here's the problem, is Esperanto is a great victim of its enthusiasts, it gets overhyped. For example, every time you look up Esperanto, someone will say, oh, it's got 16 rules of grammar. That is idiocy. That was invented by, you know, that's a summary somebody came up with and looked like a good talking point. It's ludicrous. Yes. Um, and the point is not that Esperanto is easy to learn. The point is that it is supposed to be easier than any natural language to learn, which, which... It, accomplish, which it accomplishes by slamming, is by erasing as many irregularities as it can. It Certainly did not do that perfectly, but it does so much more than any natural language. Yes, that's that's true. I would still argue maybe that it's not necessarily easy for people of all cultural backgrounds, easier than any nat lang. But that's that's sort of a tangential point. I don't know if a Chinese speaker learning Esperanto would have any less difficulty than learning English. Really? I don't know. You think they're going to have an easy time with phrasal verbs and English spelling? Well, that is that is a problem, isn't it? Right. Um, but it is it is very Eurocentric. Absolutely. Well, see, that's a really interesting thing. Everyone says, "Oh, it's Eurocentric." It is sort of. The sound system is not just Eurocentric; as it sounds distinctly Slavic to me. There's yeah, that's that's something I've heard. 
write funky consonant clusters and CHs and Js and all sorts of fun there. I was surprised to realize when I was looking at words that it actually has initial KV. Right. You wouldn't Which, expect that. Why not? I don't know. I, I just wouldn't expect that in something that's supposed to be neutral. It happens all the time in Scandinavian languages that have to cope with Latin words imported into their lexical stock. So the sound system is definitely European. The lexical stock tends to be. The grammar is 100% weird and its own thing. Mm -hmm. It is not a European language. It gives the superficial appearance (laughs) of a European language. Um, But except for touches of grammar here and there, this highly agglutinative... um, Aspect and voice obsessed, not aspect of uh, voice obsessed language is not like any European language I know. Yeah, Esperanto is extremely fastidious about the distinction between a transitive and an intransitive verb. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it tends to express itself in ways that are not natural to most European languages just because of the agglutinative nature of the grammar and the way Esperantists have pushed the language. They've sort of taken the foundation laid by Zamenhof and run with it um, in all sorts of funny directions. Yeah, that's one thing is Esperanto caught on enough and I think Zamenhof kind of just sort of let it go after he developed it. He he was involved in the community, but he he allowed people to change it and it has ended up in sort of the century that it has existed to actually develop naturally a little bit. A little bit. There's still um, conservative forces. So it's important to know that Esperanto is very much a product of its time. There was a period of both distress about the historical situation and an optimism about what that it, the problem could be addressed that seems a little naive to us in the modern world. Um, second, it's not like Esperanto just appeared on the scene. There were other in- con- constructed languages with the same goal before. Volopuk is the most famous. Very, very hard. Very, very ugly. Very, very German in terms of its grammar. Um, And it was completely wiped out once Esperanto appeared on the scene. You talk about how Zamenhof stepped away. He didn't do that because he was a nice guy. He did that because he was a Jew and he wanted his language to thrive. Um, And in the Europe of that period, he had to step away a little bit. So do we want to talk a little about the grammar? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit. It is very, very regular. Yes. Um, all nouns, all parts of speech, most of them are coded by their ending, so all nouns end in O, all adjectives end in A, adverbs end in E. Yeah, the, that's, a, that's a really interesting thing to me, because uh, it's not like something you would see naturally very often. Uh, not very often. Uh, I think, is it Yoruba? All Yoruba nouns start with vowels. Oh, well, so that's not that's... exactly the same, but there's something funny going on there. Um, and the, the, the conjugation of the verb is completely regular, and all of that's very exciting. The, the, the one thing that drives English speakers bonkers is that Esperanto nouns and pronouns have case marking. Yes. There is an accusative. Yeah. We call it an accusative, but it gets used for various things in addition to marking a direct object yeah, of a transitive is it verb. An accusative, is it more like a, just an objective case no it has uh it can be used to indicate motion with prepositions huh, okay. so en la domo is in the house en la domon in the accusative is into the house oh okay that's interesting which is a standard trick of of latin mm-hmm. and, and greek which uses a different whatever i mean this is this is a usual thing to make case marking fulfill multiple roles 
And if you, for some reason, decide you want to drop a preposition altogether, you can just replace that with case marking. Okay. I mean, I can't think of a natural example of that off the top of my head. Yeah. So there's some claim because of the case marking, Esperanto can be a little bit non-configurational. It can be. In, in yeah, normal exactly. conversation, it isn't. In elevated styles of speech and definitely poetry, word order gets shuffled around. Ah, uh, okay. So it's not really... There's no real grammatical association with it, or... Mm, right. It's, it's, it's not... I don't think there's a consensus on a pragmatic interpretation for that sort of word order switcheroo. Okay. So it's it it's not no, definitely not as 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 completely non-configurational as some languages because it can nope. be that much. But uh, the the way that it you can form words is interesting to me. And there's 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 a prefix that means immoral. That's interesting. Yeah, you use it to complain about things. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because the example here is filibro, meaning dirty book. Right. Right. There are multiple ways to complain th- complain about things in Esperanto that I love. So there's Filibro, which is a naughty book. There's a Libracho, which is you know some wretched horrible book. Um, there's a verb meaning to screw up or to bungle, fushi, which often gets used in a prefix. So for example, I'll, I remember the first time I learned it when someone said that uh, Wilhelmo Shatner fush parolas Esperanton. Right. He bungles his Esperanto if he's asked to produce it on the fly. <laughs> he, he substitutes French words for Esperanto ones from time to time if you ask him to speak it now. So. Whoa, that's funny. Uh, right, so um, the word building capability of Esperanto is something devoted Esperantists play a lot with and have altogether too much fun with. Isn't um, there a word in Esperanto for native speaker of Esperanto? No. That's something that I've heard. There might be. I don't know it. I mean, Esperanto has its own culture, right? At this yeah. point, it's a, a self-selecting culture. And that brings us back to a little bit about the first episode of this podcast I was ever on, is how do you promote a conlang? And Esperanto is set because there's a self-selecting community of people who are have a, a share of characteristics beyond just speaking Esperanto. I remember talking with one of our local Esperantists, and he brought his girlfriend to a congresso, and he said, listen, when you're at an Esperanto conference, you should start off with the assumption that everyone you talk to is gay and vegetarian. <laughs> And you won't go wrong. So it might turn out not to be the case, and very often will not be the case, but you're better off just assuming that from the start. <laughs> um, and and, and Erica, Erica Okrent talks about this in her book, you know, that there's certain things that happen at Esperanto conferences that makes it seem all a little bit Victorian. Yeah, I meant to, I meant to uh, look again at the Esperanto chapter there, but yeah, she she mentioned, you know, people... It's 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 very different, and they have their own culture, their own music, their own books and such. And, and they have their own arguments. I probably qualify as a, a Raumist. So back in the late 80s, an Esperanto youth, con- youth conference issued a manifesto talking about how the original goal of Esperanto, which is to provide a worldwide common second language to make life easier for people and so they can talk through their problems instead of shooting each other, they said, that's not interesting, and instead we should think of Esperantos, Esperantists as a self-selecting identity and community worthy of respect on its own. Yeah. Um, and it's when we do things like that that Esperanto poetry gets on lists for winning Nobel Prizes. So, in, in other words, you're, you're saying that, you know, 
we're not going to be the universal language. The the economics of that doesn't make sense. So we should just say, you know, we have our own sort of subculture that is valuable in and of itself, and we should right. celebrate that rather than trying to impose this language on anybody. Exactly. Well, I mean, no Esperantist would ever want to impose Esperanto on everyone. Every, you know, we all hope that everyone will decide it's a great thing and just pick it up. But um, that's unlikely to happen. Yes. These days, if nothing else, all of France would burst into flames if, if that happened. Um, <laughs> sometime in the in the seventies, the ambassador from Iran went to the UN and said in public that maybe we should use Esperanto because it costs so much to translate. And then the French delegate got up and sort of burst into flames and ranted for an hour or something. <laughs> So, so there's there's a story that goes around that supposedly uh, Esperanto some some people in the Communist Party of China were considering making Esperanto the official language and then oh, they realized yeah they realized that it was it may be an apocryphal story but if, for a while China was pumping out a lot of propaganda in Esperanto really oh yeah yeah yeah. And there are still lots of Chinese Esperantists, and not just because there are a lot of Chinese. Um, so there are definitely groups. There's a religious organization in Japan whose name I don't remember. Um, uh, who I, sh- every- I should ran know across this, this because my sister met some of them. Right. And then also the Baha'i are kind of friendly to Esperanto as well. Um, so there are groups who you know, find this idea of, of a common language appealing. Notice that none of these people are European. So obviously Esperanto is not that offensive to non-speakers of European languages. Yeah. Um, I, I really, really want to mention this. Um, I don't know if uh, Zamenhof actually knew that, the, that, this, that this system existed somewhere else, but I like the fact that he used something... His number system is very much like the, the, uh, the Chinese or Japanese number system. Sure, but, you know, he wanted it to be easy. Yeah, Voila. and, and that, that is in my opinion, the easiest number system to deal with. Yeah, I agree. That sort of analytical building block system. But anyway, that was that was sort of a side note that I had to get in there. But yeah. Do we think um, there's anything a beginning conlanger can learn from Esperanto? Um, Apart from what not to do if you're trying to create a language that looks natural. Uh, I think um, on our word building episode, you mentioned that the Esperanto... Um, word building methods can be interesting in terms of if you want to create words through compounding. Right. Um, and it's a useful way to think about distinctions that are possible because Esperanto tackles it so systematically. I mean, it's not perfectly systematic. There are there are weird things that are not as orthogonal as you might like. But for the most part, sitting down and thinking about it, for example, there are two words for stupidity in Esperanto. Mm-hmm. Stultezzo, which is the quality of being stupid, so that's one meaning of stupidity, and stultajo, which is a particular piece of stupidity, an instance <laughs> or example of stupidity. And that's a useful distinction to make. Um, one thing I note uh, is um, the, uh, the materials you gave me don't really mention this at all. But all the grammatical endings in Esperanto follow sort of an order. Yes. It looks like it's mostly the the word class, then number, then case. Correct. So that's that's something you might want to take note of. That's on nouns. I think 
probably verbs have something similar. But Nouns yeah. and, and adjectives. <laughs> yes, it's compositional. But that's not unusual in natural languages. The thing that happens in Latin and Greek where you have your, your singular row and your plural row and your case markers are all different, that is less common than the system that Esperanto has. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know why I think that's that's important to 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 note or but I guess maybe cuz we did we did have one language that we 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 reviewed that didn't didn't mention anything about how how oh that's right. are ordered. how what order do the affixes go? Yeah, all the derivational stuff is just by sense and accumulates. So every affix applies to the totality of sense of what came before. Mhm. Yeah. Um so Esperantists can be incredibly rude, and I remember somebody was somebody was bad mouthing Esperanto ignorantly. Right? If you want to bad mouth Esperanto, please do so. But if you're going to do it to my face, you'd better know something about it first. Um, and somebody was yammering, and they said that that person was talking through their furzilo. Uh-huh. So what does that word mean? Furzi is to pass gas. The eel suffix marks a tool or an instrument, and then o makes it a noun. <laughs> So we know what he meant by that. He was disparaging the speaker. But that sort of thing is Esperantists adore. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I don't know really what you what really you could draw out of the actual structure of Esperanto. I mean, if you look, you can look at it, it's a lot more interesting than it seems to be on the surface. That's it is. I, I think both in terms of definitely transitivity is... For me, as a beginning conlanger, having to pay attention on that was an important thing because I had never studied... I mean, English is completely loosey-goosey in ways that aren't obvious unless you've studied linguistics. And even German and French, which I'd had, you, you just sort of learn without ever being told anything, right? You just learn how the things work. Whereas Esperanto is very uptight about transitivity. And that was a useful instruction and a useful way to think about things that's held me through for a long time. And it does one or two really funky things in terms of aspect that are kind of neat, that are, are worth looking at. Um, there seems to be an interesting, uh, I don't know, in the correlatives, there's there's some interesting stuff in that to me, I think. But, uh, right. They're, they're all, like, they all can be drawn up into this little chart. Yeah, the correlative chart is the biggest poison to conlanging. Uh-huh. Because you see that it's all laid out. So correlatives, we mean things like who, when, where, how, this way, that way, every way, no way. All of those fit into a very neat chart. Right? If you just Google correlative Esperanto, you'll get a nice chart. And it's perfectly regular. No natural language, even ones that are much less irregular than European languages, have anything like that. <laughs> uh, okay. I've, seen, well. I've seen too many conlangs with the gigantic correlative chart. That's perfectly regular. Don't do it. Well, okay then you can say this is not the way to do it but it might not if be, you want a naturalistic language anyway it might be the thing to look at to say well what do i want to distinguish sure because that chart is of... is full of extremely useful vocabulary just yeah. esperanto's way of producing it is highly unnatural yeah you can take a look at here and say okay i'm going to make these this and this one the same or right. i'm going to include some of these, I'm not going to include all the different categories they have. Or maybe <laughs> yeah. this, this and that will be entirely different words. Yeah, yeah. Right, so the, the, there's, there's things you should do. But in my experience, that's the poisonous idea for... Yeah, definitely definitely don't do the, the regular sort of what they do with a, a very regular derivational system for it, where where you have 
one element that defines like the the uh, whether it's question word or or negative word or whatever, and another element that that is what kind of thing it is. Don't do sure. that. Well, well, I mean, that happens to a certain degree in natural languages, like when I was talking about ancient Greek earlier. All the negative adverbs, there are two of them because one is composed with the indicative and one is composed with the non-indicative um, negator. It's just that the pattern is not 100% regular in ancient Greek, Well, where it is 100% regular in Esperanto. Yeah, and you can say things like most English question words begin with WH. Right, but, but we have how. Yeah, but uh, I, I wouldn't even say even copy this chart and throw a screwball like that in. I would say use this chart to think of different possibilities that you can have, but don't copy the way that Esperanto makes it. Just just yep. sort of to do your own thing based on the ideas that this chart allows you to figure out how it's expressed. It might be useful to have in your grammar. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a lot of talk about a correlative chart, but yeah. <laughs> um I think that's about all that I have to say about it. So, yeah. and I will link to the the materials that we we have here. A lot of Esperanto materials online are geared towards learning Esperanto rather than describing it. Right. There is a, just a beautiful, wonderful description of Esperanto, but it's in Esperanto, so that's not going to help most people. Oh, <laughs> uh, only Esperanto would would end up with a grammar that's written. In Esperanto. And that tells you something about the state of the language, I think. The the fact that there's a culture behind it. And people there's a culture behind it, it and the fact that it's perfectly reasonable for a not very advanced person to consult that instead of a grammar in their own language. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, um, we can move on, I think, to... Have we done this feedback? The funky poetry one? Yeah. We have not. Okay, I think I, it just looks familiar because it's been sitting in the Conlangery in- inbox for so long. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think we failed to do a feedback on one episode. I want to make sure we did do that. So this email is from Nathaniel Fisher. And he said, uh, I've developed a fairly complicated type of poetry for my Conlang chaparato. This kind of poetry is known as gi, and I don't know how to pronounce this. He has actually... It appears to be a high tone and nasalized long vowel. <laughs> Props to you, sir. Gi. Yeah. Okay, that's serious. I have a hard time nasalizing high vowels, but anyway. Uh, I have I have trouble. I I don't like nasalization in general, but anyway. But that's my stupidity. Anyway. So let's drill down with what his stuff. He says, A is a nasal syllable with high tone. Okay, well, here's the deal. He has a very, very specific list of the types of syllables. Right. And then those are arranged into a very specific... I'm just going to put the email in the show notes and you can read this because it, I, it would be very boring radio. It's, it's kind of like um, regulated verse in, you know, like Tangshu Chinese, where there are patterns of tone. And in his case, he also regulates um, nasal or oral vowels. Yeah. And so there's fixed patterns of, of those. And he yeah. organizes them in various ways in a mind-bogglingly complicated scheme. Yeah, and he he has a particular... It ends up with stuff. This is the um, the poem. I don't know if I can read this poem. Yeah, that's fine. Don't bother. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything about his phonology. The translation turns out as 
rock marble clear, autumn fern dirt, poison tide clever branch, poison elder clear, clear clear poison poison. I'm not exactly sure. I guess his poems don't really have to be grammatical at all. Either that, either that, or what he's giving us is a gloss, basically. Yeah. Um. But that's that's a really interesting example. Um. I think I might. I wonder if it would be easier for people to understand if he just said, "Okay, this is the pattern of tones, and this is the patterns of nasality." Right. And. And just I, I think that this may be a limitation of the email. I think if he just well, but then he sends the full tone and nasality markup in his example poem. I think just picking a a, a, a dummy vowel and writing patterns of tone and nasality on that one vowel that would be a lot easier to see what what's going on. Yeah, it could be a little make it a little easier. Anyway, so um, thanks you for that email and. And we don't think we have any new iTunes five-star reviews. Oh, well. Yes. Well, you know, we only have so many listeners. But we could have more if we had more five-star <laughs> reviews, possibly. Because people would find it on iTunes. <laughs> I don't know I don't know what the, the natural top of the listenership for this episode is. I know I know there's not that many conlangers, but I, I, I hope there's there's some room for us to grow. So, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? No, I didn't. I didn't think of wisdom today. Okay. Then I'm just going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find all our episodes and show notes, as well as subscribe to our iTunes or RSS feeds through conlangery.conlang.org. You can also like our Facebook page or follow at Conlangery on Twitter. If you would like to contact us with corrections, comments, questions, or suggestions, or even suggest your own Conlang as a feature, please email conlangery at gmail.com or call into our new voicemail line, 304-873-873. 6281. We also have a handy suggestions form on our site. Our theme music was created by Xander Vidaeus. <laughs>